Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. The financial world has been rocked over the past few days as Silicon Valley Bank, the nation's 16th largest bank, which had $209 billion in assets and $175 billion in deposits just as of this December, failed with little warning. This is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Shockwaves from this very fluid situation are still in the process of rippling through the tech ecosystem, as many VC-funded startups exclusively did their banking there. And depositors around the country are suddenly wondering how safe their own banks might be. To bring us up to speed on the latest developments and discuss what's most likely to happen from here, former Federal Reserve insider Joseph Wang, who publishes about the inner workings of the monetary and banking systems, has kindly agreed to sit down with me here on a Sunday for this special recording. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Adam. Well, Joseph, um, you are a great expert on kind of the inner plumbing of the banking system and the monetary system. Um, I, uh, I want to get into the causes for the shutdown uh, for Silicon Valley Bank and, and for the most likely next steps uh, to come out of it, uh, especially in regards to its depositors. Um, I want to get to that in just a moment, but can you explain what's going on right now at the bank over the weekend as we're talking? Yeah, so right now, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank is on Friday, it was shut down and taken into receivership by the FDIC. So when a bank goes under, the FDIC basically takes ownership of it and tries to um, figure out what to do. So what can what's probably happening right now and what the Bloomberg reports are suggesting is that the FDIC is looking for a bidder, someone to buy Silicon Valley Bank. And that would be a very good outcome because if someone's willing to buy the bank, then all the depositors are probably going to be okay. Uh, the worst situation would be that no one ends up buying the bank and so the FDIC will liquidate it. So what would happen is that the FDIC would uh, give all the insured deposits, depositors their money on Monday. And over a period of, let's say, the coming months, it would slowly liquidate the asset portfolio of Silicon Valley Bank and distribute the assets to the remaining creditors. Now, there's a... There's a so. We may not think of it this way, but when we deposit money in a bank, we're actually lending money to a bank. So we are a bank's creditor. So if a bank goes insolvent, that means that it owes more than it owns. So the FDIC is going to liquidate the assets of Silicon Valley Bank in the event of no buyer and disperse that to the creditors according to a waterfall. So the insured depositors will get paid off. The FDIC uh, will get paid its administrative fees and so forth. And then the uninsured depositors get paid. And after the uninsured depositors get paid, um, other general creditors get paid as well. But from the situation, it looks like uh, if there is a liquidation, there's not enough money to pay down all the uninsured depositors. Uh, they're probably going to get, by my analysis, maybe about 70 to 80 cents on the dollar if that if that happens. But it, it's in my in my judgment, by the time you hear this recording, uh, the government would have figured something out, figured out a, a buyer, maybe added a lot of um, sweeteners to make the deal go through and things should be okay. But if not, then yeah, a lot of people who put money there are going to lose money. Okay. So um, first off, when a bank goes into receivership, like uh, Silicon Valley Bank did on Friday, it's kind of like a SWAT team descends on the bank, right? This is what the FDIC, this is kind of its job, right? It comes in, it, it does all the accounting, the forensic accounting, figure out, you know, who's going to get paid what according to that waterfall process. And if it can line up a buyer, it tries to line up a buyer over the weekend because its goal is basically to, th these things tend to happen on weekends anyways, um, because its goal is to basically open the bank's doors for business on Monday, if the bank's still going to stay in business, uh, so that people feel more confident uh, in the banking system. Correct? You're nodding as I'm saying all this. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so when a business, not just a bank, any business fails, there, there's a problem with creditor preference. So um, we don't want the people to, so we want we don't want people to get paid back according to how quickly they run to the bank. So that's not that's not what we want. Um, if a if a business wants to go under, we want to have it be liquidated in an orderly way, if it has to be liquidated at all. And so when the FDIC closes doors. It's trying to have an orderly process. If it doesn't do that, then you just have long lines, you're so panic and so forth. And like you mentioned, 
doing this over the weekend is a good idea since you know uh, businesses are uh, closed market is at least closed during the weekend so there's less panic okay and you you said this is sort of a waterfall in terms of the way the payments yes. get made and it's basically by sort of seniorage right like who who has the, the the best biggest claim and at the top of that i believe correct me if i'm wrong but is is the insured depositors right and but when we say insured depositors we're mostly talking right about the fdic up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars in any one given account correct that's exactly right those guys will get paid full so that's not a problem they're insured okay. by the fdic um and the fdic actually has a as a big um, insurance fund to make sure that those payments are made right and and real quick on that fund i've, I've seen on the internet at times you know, there's only enough money in the FDIC insured fund to insure like a percent or something like of all banking assets or whatnot, um, which may or may not be true. And you can correct that statement if you want in a moment. But from what I've also heard is that there haven't been that many bank failures since the the, the GFC, the great financial crisis, global financial crisis. Uh, and so I've sort of heard that the FDIC bank bailout fund is actually kind of flush. So in other words, in this particular case with Silicon Valley Bank, there's no worry that the FDIC isn't going to be able to pay out that 250000 to every insured account, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So the FDIC actually is like any other insurance company. It collects a fee that banks have to pay and in return provides them insurance. And as you noted, over the past few years, there have not been many bank failures. So banks continue to pay into that insurance fund, but the insurance fund has not had to pay out. So... Just for some context, over the past 20 years, we've had about 550 bank failures. Most of that is concentrated around the great financial crisis time. And um, yeah, so and so since the past few years, we've had very, very few. I don't think we've had any in the past couple of years. And uh, like you mentioned, the Silicon Valley Bank is a notable one in that it's very large. There are $210 billion in assets. And the ones that have failed in the recent years tend to be very small. So it's uncommon for something like this large to fail. But so for some more context though, 210 billion is not super big in the banking sector. It's about medium largest bank. Um, for context, JP Morgan, the largest bank in the US has $3.5 trillion in assets. So Silicon Valley Bank will be less than 10% of a JP Morgan. Um, so it doesn't pose any systemic risk in my judgment. Okay, great. And I do want to dig a little bit more deeply into sort of the systemic and contagion risk uh, in, in a bit. But before we get there, the, the main thing I want folks to take away from here is let's say you're a regular person with less than 250000 in Silicon Valley Bank. From everything you're seeing, that person shouldn't freak out. You're going to get your money. I guess my question to you is, is if they indeed open the doors tomorrow on Monday, would somebody be able to withdraw their insured deposit uh, on demand that day or or is yes, it uh, absolutely okay so, so it's not like they make it available over time it's oh, doors open you can come get it if you're an insured depositor you'll get your money uh, basically that's that that's the first thing they do so there's zero zero risk for that and to be clear this is the government a government agency so even if their uh, insurance fund quote unquote is not sufficient and it absolutely is, but even if it were not, uh, I'm sure the treasury would kick in some money. So um, that's that's really not a concern. The concern is that if you deposit money there beyond the FDIC insurance limit, and there I think losses are, are very possible. Right. And, and let, let's talk be about that because Silicon Valley Bank had a very high percentage of unsecured deposits, correct? Exceptionally high percentage, really. It's um, over 90%, which is very uncommon for a bank. So part of the reason Silicon Valley Bank failed is that it was exceptionally poorly run. It's just a terrible, terribly run bank. So, and part of the reason is, like you mentioned, their reliance. So a bank can choose their funding sources. Any competently managed bank would not be run this way. All right, and I do wanna definitely dive into this with you. Um, there's a lot of kind of idiosyncrasies or unique attributes of how Silicon Valley Bank was run. Um, it really was the premier bank to the, the tech sector and actually to a lot of other industries here in the Bay Area where I live. Um, I actually live up in Sonoma County, which is about an hour north of San Francisco. And I was at a dinner last night, which included, interestingly enough, some employees 
of Silicon Valley Bank, but also a number of customers. And what I learned, and I didn't know this, but I learned that most of the wineries up here in Sonoma and Napa County also banked with Silicon Valley Bank. It was the preferred banking, uh, the preferred bank to the, the wine industry. So you have a bunch of people up here, you know, just like there's a bunch of startup employees down in Silicon Valley wondering if, if payroll is going to be made next week because all their funds are at Silicon Valley Bank. You have a bunch of people in the beverage industry up here freaking out about the same thing. Um, so, uh, okay, so uh, uninsured deposits. So maybe we can take a step back and just sort of talk about how Silicon Valley Bank got here, right? Because mm -hmm. I... I as I understand it, there are there are some risks, including poor risk management, um, for why Silicon Valley Bank got in the position it got in, and that's sort of unique to the bank itself. But then there's some other risks that that came into play here that are shared by other banks. So I want to kind of parse the two. So first off, as I understand it, um, Silicon Valley Bank um, just hyper enmeshed with the tech industry, especially on the, the VC startup side of things. And as I understand it, a lot of startups were told by their VC funders, as a part of the covenant of the capital we're giving you, you have to bank with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, so Silicon Valley Bank had a, a tremendous amount of deposits from the VC startup industry. In fact, it had very little retail deposits, if I've been reading the data correctly. Um, so when it was just very overexposed to this industry and fate being what it is, the startup industry has kind of been going into a nuclear winter here where the VC funding has been drying up. So startups were not depositing any more funds in Silicon Valley Bank. And instead, with their burn rate, we're just increasingly drawing cash out of Silicon Valley Bank. And that's going to be important for a second. But let me take a breath. Is, is what I've said accurate so far? Yeah, you're exactly right. So Silicon Valley Bank, uh, from what I from what I understand, was willing to take credit risks in in a way that other banks were not willing to take. They were willing to um, provide services and loans to some of the higher risk segments of the market, like uh, these startups. And in return um, for providing that, they had to keep their deposits in Silicon Valley Bank. So okay, and uh, it's interesting. I, I heard last night. Because um, they're they're you know these are these are people that have been dealing with the bank that there were kind of an agreement with the bank and the startup community was, look, we'll agree to keep our money with you um, and you know you'll give us all these banking services and we'll take care of you like we'll we'll make sure that our companies still continue to bank with you and of course what what then began happening is people got nervous is you had these VCs telling their startups okay pull your money out of Silicon Valley Bank which kind of created this this bank run. Um, but but the so so the 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 enmeshment with the VC community kind of unique to Silicon Valley Bank, um, the poor risk management, which we can talk more about in a moment, pretty unique to Silicon Valley Bank. But one other thing they did, which which applies to more banks, except maybe Silicon Valley did a bank did a worse job of it, is you know they they borrowed short um, and lent long, right? And so they had this portfolio. Um, of, um, of of bonds um, where uh, uh, because interest rates have risen so quickly, the market value of those bonds um, was taking losses. And if, if those are unrealized losses and you can slog through, not a problem. But if you're forced to, to sell those assets because you need to raise cash to pay your depositors who are taking their money out of your bank, then those were losses become realized losses, right? And so that was happening at Silicon Valley Bank. And, and this was another issue, I believe, that was hopefully uniquely bad to Silicon Valley Bank, but I don't know. They didn't have any hedges to interest rate exposure. So when they made those loans, they didn't, they didn't have any insurance policy against it. So they were just having to eat these losses, like I said. And that's when word began getting out in Silicon Valley, hey, the health of the bank isn't so great. Therefore, I want my companies to take their money out. And that just created the vicious cycle that created the bank run. Yeah, Adam, that's a really good summary. It really is, at the end of the day, an old-fashioned bank run. So just some more context on this. So Silicon Valley Bank is about $210 billion in size. And what's really strange about how they manage their assets. So, uh, so a bank, when someone deposits money in a bank, uh, they're lending money to a bank. We may not think of it as that way, but when I put $1,000 in Silicon Valley Bank, 
I can take that money back anytime I want. I'm basically lending it to Silicon Valley Bank. And Silicon Valley Bank, from their perspective, is borrowing money from me. That's the liability side. Now, what does Silicon Valley Bank do on the asset side? If for normally for most banks, like a peer bank, let's say um, First Republic, would be making a lot of loans uh, to mortgage, mortgage loans or corporate loans and so forth. But what Silicon Valley Bank did was they went and they bought a whole lot of securities. They so did. Other- and I'm sorry to interrupt you because I misspoke earlier. I, I, I'm sure yeah. they did do some lending, but I said they borrowed short and lent long. They really no. borrowed short and then they bought long. <laughs> no, that's lending. That's lending to the government, lending to. to I guess mortgages. you're right. It's lending it's, to the it's, government. It is. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right, Adam. Um, so of their $210 billion assets, $120 billion were in securities. That's very, very uncommon. So First Republic, I talk about First Republic since people are putting them as peers. They, they do similar businesses and they're about the same size, had about a securities portfolio of about $30 billion. So um, what, um, what Silicon Valley Bank was doing was very different. The credit quality of those securities was pretty good. They're lend, usually lending the treasuries or um, agency-backed mortgages, which are mortgages backed by the federal government. But that exposes them to a lot of interest rate risk, like you mentioned, Adam. So when interest rates go higher, if you have a fixed income security, that the the price of the fixed income security goes lower. So the bond portfolio declines in value. So on the books, the securities portfolio was worth 120 billion, but if you market to market, it was worth 100 billion. So they had $20 billion in unrealized losses. Um, it's really hard to talk about solvency, though. When you're looking at a bank, so if you bought a treasury, for example, um, and then it declined in value, you're, ha- you're sitting on a mark-to-market loss. But if you hold that treasury, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to get 100 cents on the dollar because the government has no credit risk. So even if you have unrealized losses on your portfolio, if you hold it to maturity, eventually those, those um, securities, they pay off because there's no credit risk. So what you may look like a, I think, significant decline in your asset values can over time heal. The problem is liquidity. What if everyone starts to ask for their money back as Silicon Valley Bank did, uh, depositors in Silicon Valley Bank did, then you have to sell those securities and then you realize those losses and then you might not have enough money to pay your depositors. Now, a competent bank would have managed their interest rate risk, like you mentioned. what banks usually do is that they put on hedges so that when interest rates go higher, even though they lose money on the bond portfolio, they make money off the hedges. So net on net, uh, their asset values don't decline too much. Silicon Valley Bank was very, very, I guess, unique in that they basically had no interest rate hedges. So they were in a sense having this huge YOLO bet on interest rates staying low forever um, to to an exceptional size, you know, $120 billion in fixed income securities. And, uh, that did not turn out well for them. So, um, so they, they did have a lot of unrealized losses. And that meant that when everyone was asking for their money back, and if they liquidated their entire securities portfolio, they would not have enough money to make those payments immediately. Uh, so that would make them insolvent, which, which we kind of see happening. Another way that banks manage this problem is how they manage their liabilities. So again, if you know that you don't have enough assets to satisfy all your liabilities, another thing you can do is make sure all those liabilities don't come due immediately. Because the asset portfolio, if you hold it long enough, eventually it will pay down. So what if you manage your liabilities in a different way to make sure that the liabilities don't come due until later on, let's say in five or five or six years. So usually what a bank would do is it would manage its liabilities to make sure that some of them are contractual. So instead of having deposits that can be on demand uh, anytime, maybe I can borrow uh, in a CD that's due in one or two years. Maybe I can issue uh, a corporate bond that's not due in five years. Or, and this is more common for a bank of um, Silicon Valley Bank size, is to make sure that you have a depositor base that's largely insured. So if you have a depositor base that's largely insured, then these guys, they usually don't panic and they won't withdraw their money easily. So even though a retail depositor can take their money out of a bank anytime they want, in practice, they don't. In practice, their deposits are sticky. So um, if you have more retail depositors, 
your liabilities are more stable and you won't have this run dynamic. What Silicon Valley Bank did was that they basically completely relied on non-retail depositors, as you were mentioning, Adam. And these guys, they panicked and they withdrew money, forcing the bank to realize losses and basically become uh, insolvent. All right, great, great scenario there. So, or great description there. So, um, you know, having lots of retail customers acts as diversification for a bank, right? The likelihood that all those people are going to come and ask for their money back at the same time is really, really low. But if you have a few customers with a lot of money, you don't need that many of them to come and start claiming to, you know, for, they want to take their deposits out for you to start getting into hot water. But let me ask you this question, Joseph. So um, do you know off the top of your head what the average duration of their outstanding um, bond portfolio was? It wasn't that long, was it? I want to say it was maybe two or three years. No, no, it, it was long. So the reason I know that it was long is because it was heavily concentrated in agency mortgage-backed securities. And mortgages, as we know, uh, pay off in like, say, 30 years, but in practice, because you're amortizing, your duration is usually about 10 years. So no, no, they had, they had sizable duration risk. Um, that, that's okay. So, so to, to be, to wait, to be made whole, to get their principal payment back then they, they would have had to find a way to delay things by a decade. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, a few years for sure. Or they could have prayed that the fed cut rates. And I think there are many people on the media clamoring for the fed to cut rates. If that happens, their mortgage bond portfolio would go up in value, and so that their realized losses would go down a lot. Right. So maybe what they could have done is yeah. taken some of their remaining deposits and spent it on lobbyists to try to get Congress to pressure the Fed to pivot early. Um, uh, the CEO yeah. of uh, Silicon Valley Bank was a director at the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, so I, I think they, they got that covered. <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. Um, although he's not anymore, right? I, I saw a headline over the weekend that he's no longer... Yeah. Well, there's no more Silicon Valley Bank either, maybe. <laughs> so. Right, 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 right. But that would certainly be a conflict of interest too, right? A guy who has a chance to influence policy, who's banked directly would benefit from the decisions. Um, okay. So yeah, basically, so what would happen here really, to your point is, as you said earlier, it's just an old-fashioned bank run, right? Where the bank, if it had more time, uh, there were several probabilities where it could have gotten out of this unscathed. But the problem was, it's just that too many depositors came and took their money out. And because it was so concentrated um, in, in having so many, so few large depositors, that became a problem in record time. Um, all right. So uh, let's see here. So uh, I guess next question, you said, you, you know, this isn't a, a systemic bank in your mind, the way that so like Lehman was back uh, in 2008. Um, but how exposed are other banks to this, to, to these issues. You know, we talked about some of the factors that were unique to Silicon Valley Bank, but but you know, getting caught flat-footed by how quickly interest rates ha have risen is that applies to any bank that's not doing good risk management. So, um, how how concerned are you that that other maybe not the J.P. Morgans of the world because they've got a lot of businesses diversifying their banking business. Um, but but smaller, maybe more regional banks, if this is all they do, do you expect to see a few other casualties here if, if rates continue to stay this high for a similar reason? I think I think concern about the banking system is totally understandable. I mean, we lived through the 2008 financial crises, and that was very much a banking crisis. So we often think of, I think, the present and the future, according to our own experiences, but I think there's been huge changes in the underlying banking sector since the GFC that make systemic risk very uh, minimal and maybe even no contagion in other regional banks. So just for some context, before the great financial crises, the banks were not really regulated very well, and they didn't actually have liquidity, very, very much liquidity. In fact, I don't believe there was meaningful liquidity requirements. Now, the official sector took huge, uh, made huge changes since then. One is that after quantitative easing, uh, the banking sector has tremendous amounts of liquidity. So today, the banks have about, the banking sector as a whole has about $3 trillion in cash on deposit at the Fed. These are called reserves. Now, pre-GFC, they maybe had $50 billion, and that's a choice, that's a policy choice that the Fed made, just to pump money into the banking sector. If you have 
you know, $15 billion in cash uh, at the Fed pre-GFC, then yeah, you can see how bankruptcies can happen. But today you have over 3 trillion and that's a lot, a lot less likely. Another huge change is that the regulatory framework became very strict post-GFC. Uh, Post-GFC, banks have requirements to have to hold a whole bunch of liquidity, not just deposit, not, not just cash at the Fed, but they have to hold treasuries and agencies and so forth. Basically, it's, it's really difficult for a big bank today to have a run. And they had to make sure that their liabilities were well, well managed. So um, it, it's hard, especially for, for a big bank. So let's let's look at JP Morgan for, for some context. JP Morgan is uh, the largest bank in America and highly regulated. Now, uninsured deposits at JPN may be 55, 60%. So that's in part because of regulation. They kind of strongly encourage big banks to manage their liabilities in a prudent way. Uh, the what could fall into the crack and maybe did was these smaller banks like Silicon Valley banks, which is regional. So they have about $200 billion in assets and you can have uh, less liquidity requirements and less liability management requirements for these medium sized banks. So uh, if you look at the big banks, they're basically socialized, they're really boring. It's really hard for them to ever fail. Um, the medium-sized banks fall through the regulatory cracks, and it's possible for something like Silicon Valley Bank to, to happen to, let's say, another regional bank. Um, I don't want to name names because I, I don't want them to fail. <laughs> but, um, um, but even among regional banks, the Silicon Valley Bank was exceptional in just how poorly managed it was. Now, the closest peer, in, when I look through it, is First Republic. And First Republic is just in a totally different situation. They have a huge loan portfolio rather than having a huge securities portfolio with mark-to-market losses, or let's say unrealized losses that are showing up on their regulatory forms. And their depositor base, instead of having 90 plus percent uninsured, they have about 60 plus percent uninsured. And if I, when I look through a whole category of regional banks, they look a lot more like First Republic than they do Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley Bank was really a big outliar in that sense. And, All right. and so, sorry to interrupt, but I'm, I'm going to put up a quick chart here, scattered chart that I think you've put up on your Twitter account that really sort of shows what an outlier Silicon Valley Bank was from a lot of its banking peers. Yeah, I'll send you another chart that I made too. So that that would be helpful. Uh, it's a, It's something I'm working on. So that's one thing. But I think you speak to a very important question about the systemic risk from higher interest rates. So as interest rates go higher, and the Fed is projecting that interest rates stay higher for longer, and in my personal view, we're going to have a decade of higher inflation. And in that situation, interest rates are going to continue to stay pretty high. And that's a big problem for the entire banking sector, because not just that they hold a lot of securities, but their loan books are often fixed rate as well. So as interest rates go higher, you can have tremendous declines in the values of the assets of the banks. And that could be, in some very technical sense, make them insolvent. But remember, solvency for a bank, it's a kind of a difficult thing to say, because if you hold the assets until maturity, all those mark-to-market unrealized losses go away, and it converges to, to, um, to par, to, to face value. So, but it does mean that there could be a lot of unrealized losses on the asset side of the book. So how well, what ultimately happens, a lot of it is going to depend upon how stable the liabilities are. If everyone goes to ask for their money back at the same time, and a bank has a lot of unrealized losses on its asset books, then that could be a problem. But if you manage your liabilities well, that's that's unlikely to happen. Okay, so several questions based off of that. Um, the first is uh, in this higher higher yield market that you're talking about, um, there's another factor in play here too, to a certain extent. Um, and I'll use myself as a data point of one, right? Um, interest rates have, you know, the Fed's been hiking interest rates, right? Um, and banks have not been concurrently hiking their um, savings yields in, in tandem, right? So they've still been paying a lot less than now what short-term treasuries are paying. And so people like me have been noticing that and saying, hey, my, my cash is going to be much better treated in a T-bill. And so my personal solution to that has been buying T-bills through Treasury Direct, which comes in and takes the cash out of my bank and stores it at the Treasury. 
and the T-bill is paying me more, right? I can I can have it put back in the bank whenever I want at the end of any particular expiration on the T-bill. But right now the bank, my, my bank is not enjoying that cash. It's sitting at the treasury. Um, how big of a factor is that in this world now? So that's a, actually a very interesting point you noticed, and it corroborates my own work on the subject. So what happens? So the Fed publishes data every quarter to show um, basically who holds treasuries. A big question going into um, this year was that who is going to buy all those treasuries now that the Fed weren't, wasn't buying, now that commercial banks weren't buying. Uh, my, my work suggests, based on the most recent Fed data, was that households, basically people like like yourself mentioning, and uh, let's say uh, maybe some hedge funds as well, were buying treasuries to an extent they never had bought before. They bought you know almost a trillion dollars in treasuries o- over quarter three last last year. And that was seemingly in part because banks were offering low yields and the households could get higher yields off off their off buying treasuries. And that that is a problem for, for a bank because it competes with their deposits. But it's not really it's more of a timing issue rather than a than a real run on the bank issue. It's a timing issue because you have to take a step further as to as to what happens to your money after you buy a treasury. After you buy a treasury, money goes into the treasury's bank account at the Fed, but then after fiscal spending, it goes back into the banking sector and it becomes someone else's deposit. So for example, Adam, you took, let's say $1,000, bought a treasury bill, and then the Fed, and then the treasury goes and they uh, sends a payment to a doctor through Medicare. And then that money then goes to the doctor's bank account. Uh, in the banking sector. So the overall deposits in the banking sector actually doesn't change. Uh, it just kind of changes ownership. The level mm-hmm. doesn't change. What could be, I think, a more possible run on the bank sector is if everyone moved money not into treasuries, but into a money market fund. Because when you move money into a money market fund, what happens is that the money in practice goes into the reverse repo facility since there's not much else for the money market fund to buy. And when money goes into the reverse repo facility, that money leaves the banking sector. So that could be a potential run on the banks. But at this point, I I don't see that being a big risk. Um, It could be that after Silicon Valley Bank, uh, if it fails, people get worried and move lots of money into the money market fund space, thus, uh, I think, sucking money out of the banking sector. But so far, money market fund assets have been pretty stable, uh, rising a little bit. All right. Um, well, fascinating. So back, back to the point I, I was making about the difference between what, what banks are paying on deposits and what treasuries and maybe increasingly money markets are offering. Is that going to put pressure on banks to raise deposits to try to compete more to, to, to retain or attract more depository capital? And if so, is that just another sort of headwind on banks going forward in this higher inflationary world? Because they're they're just being forced to pay out more uh, in savings interest. So what in banking, there's this idea called a deposit beta. And that is, let's say if the Fed raises rates by 1%, how much does it flow into uh, depositor accounts? Traditionally, the deposit beta is very low, as we've seen right now. The Fed is up to, let's say, almost 5%, and most deposit accounts yield very much close to zero. Um, Historically, what happens is that as we go longer into the hiking cycle, the deposit beta picks up. So eventually, the commercial banks do start end up offering higher deposit rates. And part of that is, as you mentioned, competition through other more market-based instruments like treasury bills. I think in this point, what, what's going to be the bigger aspect in driving that is going to be quantitative tightening. So when the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, it's literally sucking money out of the banking sector. And so there's literally less deposits to go around and that forces banks to, com- to compete. That's happening uh, at a gradual pace about, you know we've done a few hundred billion so far and, and it's slated to continue over the next two years. So I agree that deposit betas will gradually rise, deposit interest, the interest on deposits will gradually rise. Is that going to be a problem on, on banks? Yes, probably they're going to narrow their NIMS. But I want to step back a little bit. Right now, banks are paying zero and they're basically lending at around, let's say, four or five percent if they keep money on deposit at the Fed. So they have a very fat NIM right now, very fat net interest margin. 
And for that to slim down a little bit, it would be going, it would not be as good as it is now, but it's not going to be horrible. It's going to probably go back to something that's a bit more historical. And of course, we always have the prospect that maybe in a year or so, we go into a recession, maybe inflation is tamed and the Fed cuts rates again. And so those margins uh, could, okay, so deposit rates could go down again and allow banks to maybe uh, maintain their net interest rate margins. Okay. Um, let me just ask the question or ask a question along the same vein, which is, you know, when the Fed was pursuing ZERP, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, that's why the banks didn't, their, their yields on deposits went to nothing, basically. Um, but now that the Fed funds rate, as you said, is near 5%, and they're still paying next to nothing. Are they just being jerks? <laughs> are they just being like really greedy and saying hey we've got this great spread and we just want to fill our pockets on it or is there is there an explanation for why they're being so reluctant is, is there a better explanation for why they're so reluctant to raise their depository rates honestly it's supply and demand they can get away with it the the, the truth is most people don't care about i'd say a couple percent on their deposit account so I have, I don't know, let's say 20, 30 grand in my checking account, yield zero, but I just need that for convenience and you know, it doesn't really make that much difference for me. And for, I think if you look at the data, it's true for most, for most people as well. There's the, I mean, okay. And there's another aspect to this as well. So why is it that um, the supply and demand dynamics for deposits make it so that banks are reluctant to raise it's because in part because of quantitative easing the fed injected trillions and trillions of dollars into the banking sector the banking sector has a lot of deposits there's really no need to compete for them it, they're not scarce so to speak so if you increase the supply of something by trillions of dollars you know the, the price is going to go down so it's just the competitive pressures that the banks face in this the segment yeah in part and, because and you, mentioned, fed action, sorry, you, you, mentioned banks, yep. you mentioned the banks have trillions uh in excess reserves with the fed yeah. right what are they getting paid on that uh, um yeah basically uh fed policy rate so about five percent so they're making a really good really <laughs> it's a really good deal for them you know let, let's take let's take back a, a little bit about this so before the great financial crisis the fed did not pay interest on reserves at all and after the great financial crises they, they began to pay it it was a policy tool for them to control interest rates but also, if you remember during GFC, the banking sector was in really, really bad shape. They, um, a lot of banks, well, we had bank failures and people were worried that banks would you know, continue to fail. So interest on reserves, in a sense, is a kind of a subsidy from the bank, for the banking sector back then to make sure that even though rates are zero, that they can still earn a little bit of interest income and not go bust. Now, fast forward to today, banks are very healthy, making tons of loans, and they're making tremendous amounts of interest from um, from from fed policy uh, at three trillion dollars in reserves at about five percent you're making 150 billion dollars in interest income from the generosity of the fed so for that, free right yeah for free, and, for and free. Is, and is that a, is that a form still of like ongoing qe because is the fed inventing that money to pay them yeah that's a really good point so this is how the Fed works. So the Fed pays a whole this interest to banks and to people in the reverse repo facility. Where does the Fed get money to pay interest payments? It gets money to pay interest payments from the assets it holds, treasury securities and agency MBS. So the Fed is like this huge, huge uh, carry trader. It borrows short and then it lends long. Uh, when the curve is upward sloping, the Fed is actually making a lot of money. Over the past uh, 10 years, the Fed had about a trillion dollars in profit from this huge trade because interest rates were low and the curve was upward sloping. Fast forward to today, its interest rate expenses are much higher than the interest income it receives on its asset portfolio. Uh, this is because the curve is inverted. Um, it's losing money. Yeah. And where does it get that money from? It prints it, as you mentioned, Adam. So, okay. Uh, but, 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 but just so I understand, yeah. it, it's actually not printing money today to pay the interest and excess reserves. It printed money in the past to buy the assets, which are now generating cash flows, which it's directing to the banks to pay these. Is that, is that the way to think about it? Um, so that's the way to think about it when when they have when they have positive carry. Let's say let's say a few years ago, let's say the ten year treasury is at three percent, interest rates at around zero. So you know you're making two percent carry. So you have income 
out of your asset portfolio and use that to pay your interest payments. Today, it's very different. Today, um, so short-term interest rates are around 5%, but the Fed's bond portfolio, they bought that in the past few years. It's it's yielding much less than 5%. So every day when they pay in, every day, they're having an operating loss. They're paying more in interest expense than they receive from their bond portfolio. And they're making those interest rate payments out of money printed out of thin air. That's Okay, that's, so the difference, basically, they're making up with invented money. Uh, well, they're printing, they're printing money, but they're a central bank. That's what they do. That's uh, what they do, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but and again, just to make sure I'm following this, I hope I'm not losing anybody. But they they have cash flows coming from those assets that are on their book that they printed money to buy. Yes. Those those assets that cash flow is now insufficient to make these payments, and so they're still making the payments. They're just making up the difference with newly printed money. Exactly right. And to be clear, it's it's not a large sum. Right now, uh, if we continue to have a higher for longer stance, um, that that can grow to be a few hundred billion uh, in the coming years. But right. so far, it's been it's been limited. All right, and I know you're not running the Fed right now, Joseph. Um, wish you were, but um, uh, is there a good reason to be paying the banks this much money on their excess reserves at this point in time? You know, it's, sure, in a crisis, you're trying to just it's 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 life support. But now, after ten years of banks recapitalizing their balance sheets and you know TARP and TALF and all those programs to try to strengthen the banking system, this just seems like a massive, generous subsidy to the banks. Adam, you you you're spot on. This is completely unnecessary, and I, I think it should be rethought. Now, I'll just give you some context to okay. so that Sorry to though, but and these bastards are getting that and they're not sharing it with their depositors. <laughs> they're still making their depositors except next to zero. So sorry, rent done. <laughs> you got to guys move your money into a money market fund. That's how you uh, give the bank some competition. Okay, so I'll give you some context into some how some other countries are, are doing this to help you understand what the Fed could possibly do. So other countries like the Fed pay interest on um, on reserves but they do it in a different way. They use something called tiering. And what that means is just, for example, if you're a bank, uh, maybe your first $100 at the Fed get uh, get 5% and your next $100 get 2% interest. Mm -hmm. So in this way, um, you can still have control over interest rates because you know you can you control the marginal interest rate payment, but um, the total amount of interest rate pay, interest paid, declines because not the entire balance gets the full full interest rate. So, okay, let's make this more concrete. So the Fed is paying 5% on um, reserves right now. Uh, the Fed can easily make it so that, you know, I'm going to pay 5% on the first $10 billion in reserves. And after that, I'm just going to pay 2%. And if you do that, you can decrease the overall subsidy to the banking sector. But um, you can still maintain control over the interest rate because, again, there, there's still some portion of it that that receives the mark, the Fed policy rate, and the banks would trade among themselves to decide decide how to allocate that. And that's right. what Good. that's what they do in Japan and uh, other countries as well. Okay, um, super fascinating. Hopefully, we take a page out of the, that playbook. All right, let me um, let me bring it back to Silicon Valley Bank because obviously there's still a bunch of questions that folks have about. Okay, well, what, what, what's going to happen? Right. You know, so we've got the SWAT team from the FDIC there this weekend. Um, I believe you said earlier you, you think the 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 most likely outcome from this and maybe the one to root for is that they are lining up a buyer um, yeah. so that in that case, you know, hopefully all depositors will be best taken care of. Um, let's let's talk about that in a second. Real quick, though, um, I. I just want to put up a list here that um, has been circulating on Twitter of the companies that are most exposed uh, to Silicon Valley Bank that in terms of having you know a, a ton of their money there. You've got Circle with $3.3 billion. I mean, that's just a massive amount. Um, the next one down is Roku, uh, near half a, half a billion. Um, BlockFi, Roblox, uh, several others down here folks can read. Um, I'm assuming those companies are just, you know, sitting by the the phone or the email right now, just praying to hear some some whiff of of, of hopeful news. Um, but anyways, uh, so I mentioned that just to say, is there, is there anything in particular about people that have, companies that have that much exposure here that's that's unique, or is everybody just sort of waiting for the same news here? So 
in my experience, it's it's not uh, it's not I, I, if you are a corporate treasurer, you understand that the FDIC only covers about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in deposits, and so you'll do a lot of other things to manage your cash. For example, you can put your cash in a money market fund that is basically backed by U.S. Treasury, so there's no no um, credit risk there, and it's also very liquid because you can get your money back the same day. Or you can negotiate with a bank and have a sweep account where any money in excess of 250000 gets swept to some kind of investment portfolio or to other banks. Or you can, let's say, buy T-bills like, like you did at Adam, or you can invest in repo. There's a whole lot of things a bank treasurer can do to manage that exposure. It's actually very common practice for a bank treasurer to do that. Um, for a company like the ones you mentioned to have so much exposure to Silicon Valley Bank, I think that's um, that's that's I, I don't I think they didn't do a good job. That that's not supposed to happen. And is, so, it, is that uh, being kind or, or is the word like <laughs> malfeasance maybe a little more appropriate? Uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that that's not supposed to happen. And uh, you know, I, I'm not sure why why they why they did that. Um, you know, when I look at the tech sector as a whole, they've done some great things and made some great investments. But they've also made investments in things like FTX and and all sorts of monkey JPEGs and stuff like that. So you know, I, I think it really does vary in terms of um, you know the, the people uh, the amount of um, I guess foresight or wisdom or confidence that they have. But yeah, and uh, if I can just make a quick note, you know, the, everyone thinks the Silicon Valley guys are the smartest guys in the room, right? And we've heard that in the past. You know, that was the the moniker for the guys that that created. Um, long-term capital, right, which famously blew up back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, but uh, there was a, apparently, I'm taking this off of Twitter, but there was, a, I think, a Morgan Stanley tech conference that was held like 48 hours before all this news went down. And there was, you know, a part of the presentation was featuring Silicon Valley Bank and going through, you know, its prospects and its strengths and like not one mention of any of the risks that brought the bank down 48 hours later. So it's just sort of showing that that the industry up until literally this thing began, the wheels began coming off the car here, um, didn't have any appreciation for how overexposed or vulnerable this bank was. You know, I, I'm getting a sense that, you know, it's kind of one big club. Like if you are Silicon Valley Bank and you're part of these big banks and you have friends in the media and they all say good things about you, which is why I think outlets like Wealthian are so important. So the independent media is not going to be as biased as some of these big publications are, and you know I, I'm it, if you just listen to you know everyone saying good things about Silicon Valley Bank, what the big outlets are saying, you're you are not getting unbiased information. So like like you mentioned, they completely missed it. Well, thank you for the plug. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a bit of. Um... You know, the Upton Sinclair, uh, don't expect somebody to to pay attention to something that his paycheck, you know, pays him to ignore. I'm, I'm murdering the, the quote there, right? But there's a bit of that going on where everybody was sort of benefiting from Silicon Valley Bank's role in the system that nobody wanted to look too closely under the hood, apparently. And that was, that's what happened with FTX as well, right? Yeah, everybody yeah. wanted that story to be true so badly that they didn't do any due diligence. I, I think I think the regulators, we have to uh, have to take a good look at what the regulators did as well. I mean, Silicon Valley Bank, like I mentioned, because of its size, fell through a lot of the more stringent regulations, but it's a really bad look for the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank to sit on the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, of course, which is one of their regulators. So um, it's not just about the private sector. You know, we expect the private sector to be friends with everyone and say good things about Silicon Valley Bank and completely miss these things, but the, the actual responsibility for something like this is with the regulators. And uh, I think we have to add, ask hard questions to see whether or not there was some, I guess, bias or maybe maybe the regulators were, uh, because of their close relationship with um, the Silicon Valley Bank, maybe they didn't do as a, a good a job as they could have. So that, that's something we have to reflect on. Because yeah, a that's- too cozy. Yeah, yeah, they got too cozy. And the thing is that from the outside, even if you wanted to to make some kind of judgment on Silicon Valley Bank, you don't actually have very good information. It's hard to. But a regulator actually has a lot of information about a bank that the public doesn't have. 
Um, if you are a big bank, you actually have regulators on site looking at your books basically every day. So they should have known that this was a problem, but um, and they should have spoken to management and uh, forced management to make some kind of uh, well make changes. But but that didn't happen here. So yeah, can, can I ask a question about that? Because you you pulled up, I believe, from their public statements. So yeah, not only to the regulators see this, the public could too. That that they had no hedges against interest rate. Uh, exposure and and the the screenshot that you took from their financials, it wasn't that they had too little hedges. It was that they had none. I mean, zero, literally <laughs> zero. Like, isn't that a red flag? Shouldn't a regulator be like, wait a minute, you you, no matter what the interest rate environment is, you have zero hedges? <laughs> yeah. So that's a little bit complicated since a lot of their securities were in something called a held to uh, let's see held to maturity category. And a hold to maturity category means that you commit to hold it into maturity. And if that's the case, as we discussed earlier, um, eventually, if you're buying a treasury, even though the market value declines because of interest rates, it's ultimately going to get paid off. So uh, you, you'll get paid off. The market value verge eventually converges to its face value. Sure, eventually. But eventually. stuff can so, happen, and you want to have some insurance against that, right? Yeah, they, they should have. I think, from, from my perspective, the much more pressing thing is, why do they have so many... Uh, I guess volatile deposits. Why was it so? Why was such a high percentage of it uninsured? That's something that I think should have been addressed, and the regulator should have been aware of. I think part of this is because because of their size being just two hundred ten billion, they fell through the cracks of the most stringent regulatory regimes. No, this is this would never have happened with a big bank, but because of their size, they kind of fell through the cracks. So what could potentially happen is that we could have a change in regs, whereas uh, the more stringent liquidity re regulations cover a broader swath of banks. Now, these banks, they lobbied furiously against this, but I think they're going to be in a weaker political position if this comes up for discussion again. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, look, in, in terms of what may be getting announced in the morning, right, um, we hope, I guess, right now that, uh, that there's a buyer, right? <clears throat> um, let's say there is a buyer, uh, Joseph. Um, Presumably, depositors will be taken care of. Hopefully, I'm, I'm guessing that's you know probably an important part of the 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 negotiations. Although you know maybe there is some sort of haircut for the unsecured people that the the buyer negotiates. Um, other creditors of the bank who are lower down, and and then investors in the bank. Um, like, are the let's start with the investors? Are they just wiped out here? Yeah, even yeah. in the case of the, a purchase, the, the equity holders will be wiped out. Yeah. Okay, so even if J.P. Morgan comes in and, and buys what remains, you know, as of 6 a.m. tomorrow, uh, anybody who was an investor in Silicon Valley Bank and held Silicon Valley Bank equity on Friday, they're they're done. I, I think that's that's a very likely outcome. Okay, and then on the creditors list, then presumably there's some line below where the the, the less senior creditors are going to start taking haircuts or or just told there's no no yeah. money left over for them. Yeah. I think so. That's going to be part of the negotiation process in a sale. So okay. Most um, I know you don't have the details here, but just asking for people who work for a company that banks at Silicon Valley Bank and are worried about payroll. Do you think that that if a buyer comes, if a buyer is found, that that there will be any disruption in payrolls, or would that be something you think they'd prioritize making sure that those continue to go? Out it the would door? be a very very high priority. Um, even on Monday, so on Monday, the insured depositors will get their money back and the uninsured are going to get a portion of their money back as well. So if you had $100 uninsured, you're, you're not going to get the full $100 on, on Monday, but I think you're going to get a good chunk of it um, because it's very likely that the FDIC feels comfortable that the assets are at least enough to cover cover a good chunk of the um, $100 on uninsured. So you could get a good chunk back and I think that would make the payroll issue smoother. Okay. And your your current guesstimates from you, the numbers you've crunched so far this weekend, as you're saying, you, 70 to 80 cents on the dollar wouldn't shock you? Uh, if they got liquidated. Now, you know, I'll just walk through a very simple illustration here. So uh, let's say that a bank had $100 in deposit and it went out and it bought $100 in treasuries. Okay, that's fine, right? $100 in assets, $100 in liabilities. Interest rates go up. Let's say the treasuries fall in value and now they're $80. So you're a bank, you have $80 in assets, $100 in liabilities. That's because that's if you market to market. 
But if you hold those treasuries until maturity, eventually there'll be $100 again. And so you'll have enough money to pay off your depositors. When you have a, a big bank coming in and buying the smaller bank, then what would happen is that the bank bank has the amount of financial strength to hold those securities until they become $100 again to pay off, pay off the, um, the Got depositors. It. So it so, can pay out 100 cents on the dollar and then hold those securities knowing that it's going to get reimbursed yeah, in the yeah, future, yeah. minus so, time value of money. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 how it will work. Um, so if a big buyer comes in, then yeah, everyone, all the depositors are going to be okay. Uh, it's in my view that if they have a sale, I mean, they're going to negotiate a good, the buyer wants a good price, right? And the buyer, the public, the FDIC wants the uninsured deposits to be covered. So I'm sure that the FDIC will make sure that they're going to be okay. The other creditors, probably not. And the equity, definitely not. Okay. So so when the, the buyer is really trying to get a better price, he's basically saying, he's going up the, the stack of creditors saying, I don't want yeah. to pay that guy. I don't want to pay that guy. He's negotiating. He's, he's negotiating that. Yeah. Okay. And presumably, you know, this is what I've heard um, is that, you know, Silicon Valley Bank is a good asset, meaning, you know, you, you get these great relationships with these big tech companies. And like, like it, it, it seems like a book, I've heard it's a book of business, if risk managed well, <laughs> that a bank would be interested in taking over at a good price. So Silicon Valley Bank, as you suggested, has a has a good reputation in 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 the um, I guess the tech world. But a couple of things to note of that is that one, maybe part of the reason that they have all this tech business is that they're willing, willing to take a, a lot more risk. So maybe the traditional banks, more conservative banks, were not willing to were not in the startup scene because they thought it was too big of a risk. So it was that their risk management wasn't good. And if you have a big bank buying buying it, maybe the big bank will apply their more stringent risk management framework to the Silicon Valley Bank uh, book of business, and maybe it won't be the same um, as it was before. And, and second is that, you know, if you get, if a big bank, let's say, let's just say a big generic bank buys Silicon Valley Bank, then maybe a lot of what made Silicon Valley Bank appealing to these founders, uh, such as the great perks that I've read that they receive won't be there. And so maybe that franchise is, is, is changed. So um, I, I don't know how valuable their book is because the book could be of low quality because of its high risk, or it could be simply because of the perks that they were given, which will not be there anymore. Um, okay. So it's not a slam dunk that it's this, you know, diamond that's going to go on sale at a discount here. Well, all the guys left, right? I mean, do they still, so do they still want to bank with Silicon Valley? I mean, if it's such a great franchise, why did everyone bolt out the door? <laughs> right. Well, and part of it that it sort of shows there's, you know, no honor among thieves, right? Apparently, from what I've heard, the kind of agreement with Silicon Valley Bank was, you know, you take all of our our, our, our capital and really serve us and we'll make sure that you stay well-funded, right? And then, of course, at the first whiff of danger, they all bolted for the exit, so. Yeah, that's how um, they manage right. liabilities, yeah. Very so, interesting. Um, We've we've seen a lot of chatter over the weekend of, you know, people with varying degrees of uh, sense of alarm of what's going on here, um, and a lot of people, um, you know, opining on what they think the government should or shouldn't do here, right? And you had Bill Ackman who basically said, "Hey, we need to, you know, we need to guarantee all deposits. <laughs> the bank needs to be fully bailed out." Um, uh, there have been some people saying, hey, the Fed needs to forget about uh, arguing about a 25 basis point or 50 basis point rate hike at the next meeting. The Fed needs to do a rate cut immediately on all this. From talking with you, I get the sense that you are saying, you know what, this isn't a systemically critical bank. There's a process for dealing with failed banks. It happens all the time. Um, in fact, the coffers are relatively flush right now because we haven't had that many relatively like like we can this this should be handled the way that any failed bank typically gets handled and doesn't seem that we shouldn't be able to handle that smoothly here, right? Um, I know Janet Yellen just came out a few hours ago um, and basically said, "Hey, look, we're not going to do bailouts here. We put a bunch of uh, you know new regulation in place to not have to do what we did in 2008." Um, so you're nodding as I'm saying a lot of this, but, but, um, no, I agree so you, completely. So uh, you okay. got to be very careful with what the pundits say on TV, because 
sometimes, and some of the people you mentioned have behaved in this way in the past, is that they're trying to shape public opinion to enrich themselves. They, maybe they have some kind of position and they're trying to uh, influence, lobby the public, the policymakers through these very, I guess, uh, very public appearances on TV and on Twitter. So uh, those guys, you got to be careful what they say, especially uh, I think one of them behaved in that way during the COVID pandemic. So um, yeah, from, from everything I see, this is not systemically important. We have the tools in place. This Silicon Valley Bank, as I've discussed, very poorly run. And the system has, has a lot of policies and procedures in place to handle something just like this. And I would not be surprised if Monday, when this video airs, that um, we have a buyer and everything seems to be okay. All right, great. And if for some reason it turns out to be radically different than that, Joseph, we'll bring you back on the program again this week <laughs> to give give your latest update. Um, as we begin to close here, um, so a lot of people this weekend, no matter where they bank, you know, have been nervous. Oh gosh, how safe is my bank? Um, uh, obviously, you, you don't know the unique situation for every person watching this video. But do you have any sort of general counsel for people that are concerned, right? And I guess maybe two questions. One is, is there information that they can look at about their bank to give them a sense of confidence here? Um, I guess that's question number one. I'll start there. I've got a follow-up. Yeah. So if you if you have a lot, so first of all, I think it's really bad practice to have tremendous amounts of deposits in a in, a, in any bank. Uh, one is that, like you mentioned, there's there's not that much interest and you always have the prospect of credit risk. And the sad thing is that if you are a depositor, you don't have that much insight into the inner workings of the bank. So I would recommend that you put some money in a money market fund. So money market funds right now, they're offering, let's say, four, four and a half percent, and they're going to be offering five percent as rates go higher. And that's a good return. And there's basically no credit risk in a money market fund. They take that money and they invest in treasury securities or they lend to the Fed. So there's really no credit risk, uh, especially in government money market funds, and you're getting a pretty good return, and it's very liquid. So if you want your money back, you can get it back the same day. So that's that's what I would recommend. Uh, it's it when you're when you have money in a bank, you're lending to the bank in an unsecured way. It's not a good thing to do. Uh, I think the big big macro thing that could happen is that we have a shift out of these smaller regional banks into the JPMs of the world, since everyone knows that those are too big to fail. So that's that's a risk as well in, in the uh, for the smaller banks. Okay, and, and I, I did. I'm glad you brought that up. So um, let let's say that there are smaller banks that that do make similar mistakes as um, as Silicon Valley Bank did, right? And so we have more banking failure, uh, more banking failures at maybe the smaller regional level. That then, sadly, in my opinion, is just letting the bigger banks step in by those businesses and basically increase their already what I would sort of consider obscene concentration of the banking system, right? Yeah, that that's a really that that seems to be a, an unfortunately likely outcome of this. I hope it doesn't happen. Um so banks are are really important and powerful because they can create money. They decide who gets money and who doesn't. Having a lot of small banks, a decentralized banking system is much better for for a for a democracy or for a country, you don't. Uh, it's a, you know, it sounds strange, but uh, it's actually pretty important for I think for individual liberty. And I'll give you an example. Um, if you are a big bank, let's say, and someone in Washington says that I don't like oil and gas anymore, you big bank, you got to be green. You cannot make loans to um, these oil and gas industries or any other industry that I don't like. Well, if you have a very concentrated banking industry that comes down and you can basically uh, just through very small people in Washington basically choke off a lot of industries. But if you have a decentralized banking sector, when some that are regulated by state and some that are small and not out of the view of Washington, then you can have, I guess, and if let's say you are a industry that's not favored simply because you don't have the right, I guess, political connections and so forth, then you would still be able to get loans things like that. So um, a, a, the banking system is a, a very powerful tool and you want that to be decentralized. Otherwise there's the potential for abuse of it. 
All right, Joseph. So one thing I just want to make clear, folks, get your opinion on here. You're saying, hey, um, there are alternatives like putting your money in a market uh, money market fund and whatnot. You are not. I just want to make it really clear. You're not ringing a bell to tell people, hey, you've got to rush out tomorrow and no. put your money in T-bills or just get it out of your bank, right? You're I not... feel that the banking sector as a whole is safe and secure, and I don't worry about it at all. I think Silicon Valley Bank is just a badly managed bank. It's an outlier, and I'm not worried about uh, about the banking system or any other bank at all. Okay. Um, all right, Joseph. Well, look, this has been phenomenally valuable, useful. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us and, and explaining a very complicated development in really relatable, digestible, uh, everyday layman's terms. Um, for folks that um, have enjoyed listening to you here, maybe this is the first time they're getting exposed to you. Um, where can they go to learn more about your work, um, especially the the commentary you're continuing to put out there as the developments with Silicon Valley Bank continue to unfold? Sure. So my latest thoughts are on Twitter, FedGuy12, but I also teach and write about the markets. So I have a website called FedGuy.com that has blogs about what's happening. And if you're interested in learning about the financial system, I have a best-selling book on Amazon called Central Banking 101. And if you're interested in learning about markets from the perspective of a macro trader. I also have a series of courses on my website called Markets 101 that teaches people how to understand the financial markets. Fantastic. Those are a lot of great resources. And um, Joseph, when we edit this, I'll put up the URLs on the screen so folks know where to go for, for all those things. Um, it's been wonderful having you here. Um, real quickly, as we wrap up, I just want to make a couple of quick housekeeping notes for folks. Um, one is the Wealthion uh, March conference is coming up, folks, in less than a week now, and obviously a big part of the discussion there is going to be the continued fallout of what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank. So if it turns out to be um, more disruptive even than, than what Joseph thinks it might be here, we will be covering that in real time at the conference. To learn more about the conference, uh, to sign up for it, uh, just go to wealthion.com slash conference. Um, also, just want to reiterate for folks, um, you know, so I say every week, it's a very challenging uh, market environment um, for the individual person to navigate and kind of, you know, hand grenades like what just happened uh, with Silicon Valley Bank going off, create all sorts of ripple effects that, you know, get the market really wound up, confused, fearful, etc. that just makes the gyrations even harder to predict and even more violent to navigate. So highly recommend that you do navigate these markets um, following the guidance of a professional financial advisor who understands all the macro issues that, that Joseph and I have been talking about here. If you have a good one who does that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, uh, consider talking to, uh, or you want a, a second opinion from one who does, consider talking to the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. It doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a public service they offer. Uh, to schedule one of those free consultations, just go to Wealthion.com fill out the short form there. Um, and if you've enjoyed this conversation uh, on this special interview that we recorded here on a Sunday um, and want to show appreciation um, <laughs> for Joseph coming on the program, please do us a favor and support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Joseph, again, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. This has been a fascinating and valuable conversation. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. It's a pleasure. Like I said, the door is always open for you to come back on here, too, and provide any updates on us that you think this situation deserves as it continues to unfold. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.